were here uh, yesterday. Welcome back for the uh, first day of our seminar. Thank you all very much. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you all enjoyed gold as an investment day yesterday. We're now going to morph straight into four days of gold as money. Before we do that, I'd actually like to thank Dr. Marcus Matthews for putting on the seminar. This is not just a perfunctory politeness. I actually did the majority of the organising last year, and I know full well the work and worry and stress and that goes into it. You've done a great job, Marcus. Well done. Um, the Gold Institute was formed nine months ago. We've made good progress since then, which is uh, it's a good thing as the world looks dodgier every time, every morning that I stumble out of bed. But we have a long way to go. But as a mark of the progress that we have made, I'd just like to point out one thing, which was that the first seminar I went to was in Hungary in August of 2007. And there were a total of 14 people that there, including the speakers. Now, last year we got up to 46 people, but I still couldn't get the media involved last year. And I tried, and we rang, and sent out emails, and to no response. I even couldn't, in the end, I even failed to get the interest of the Chronicle, which is a local rag, one of those newspapers that gets thrown onto your lawn and is <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even get them interested. So this year we have even better numbers. We also had two interviews with Professor Paquette on New Zealand television. We had a live interview on the ABC Drive Time. We had nibbles of interest from Sky News. We have a documentary maker turning up today. Things are changing, progress is being made. We have a country mile still to go, of course, but we are making progress. It's important to me that everyone understands that we are deadly serious about achieving the purpose of the Gold Standard Institute. This is not just a, a fun thing to do, it's not just a momentary whim or a fad. The world will not step back from this brink utilising the same paper pseudo-money that brought us here. There is a change coming and we intend to help form that change, be a part of, we, we intend to have an input on what sort of change that is. We are all of us confronted with three choices at the moment in life. Those choices are to either completely ignore the situation, and our politicians are doing a great job of that in some ways. The second option is to actually run away from it, you know, to get some boxes of baked beans and a gun and to head to the hills, and uh, that's what you can get about in this country. And you've got to admit on some mornings when it's slightly dodgier, that doesn't seem like such a bad plan B. But the Institute has opted for the third option, which is to actually confront the situation and to do something about it. And toward that end, I hope that you'll all visit our website, which is www.goldstandardinstitute.com. Read what's on there, read in particular the introductions, <coughs> read the purpose of the Institute, and get behind us, sign up for the newsletter, and become financial members. Our intent is to open a physical location for the Institute in Vienna next year or somewhere in Europe, but my inkling is still for, my intention is still for Vienna. Um, to do that, I will simply need more money than I currently have. And uh, I'm not very good at asking for money, which is why I haven't managed to raise very much so far. However, my philosophy in this is that uh, 
there is this idea, this idea that we can actually achieve things with the Institute. And I want you to come and read those things so that that idea becomes your idea. And when it becomes your idea, well, then you'll be able to financially support it. Because uh, I don't expect, I find it very hard to say, hey, look, I've got this great idea. You all give me the money for it. Okay, I have a philosophical objection apart from that, apart from anything else. But if it becomes your idea, then that's different. I'd like it to become your idea. I'd like you to contribute towards the establishment of the Institute and to the furtherance of its goals. And um, I'd actually like to give a quote at this point, which is a favourite quote of mine. It's, uh, not a, it's not original. You definitely will have heard it before, I'm sure. But I believe that never was it more pertinent to the situation. And that quote is, if not now, then when? If not us, then who? On that note, I'm going to hand over to my very good friend and a person who first stuck his hand up to support the Institute. And uh, I'd like to thank him for his support and for his wise counsel, the Editor-in-Chief of the Gold Standard Institute, Mr. Rudy Frisch. Thank you, Philip. That was a great introduction, and um, I think you put it very well, if not us, then who, and if not now, then when. So I'd like to, I already talked a little bit yesterday, I guess most of you heard it, maybe all of you heard it, and um, <clears throat> I talked a little bit about money and gold is money and so on. What I'd like to do is just a little touch on the background of how the, this whole thing came about. I think we have a little bit more time to share with you. Uh, Professor Fekete is from Hungary, so am I, and I escaped from Hungary as a refugee in 1956, the revolution, and I, as I mentioned, it was the gold watch that took us through the border. Anyways, um, my family ran a manufacturing company. My father started a business in Canada in the early 1960s, the old-fashioned way. Didn't rent anything, didn't borrow anything. He saved, he had two jobs, and we saved, and my mother worked part-time bought a piece of land, put up a small shop, and started from there, and started a manufacturing outfit. And this grew quite nicely, and at the heyday of 10, 15 years ago, we were in the $10 million a year range. Things were sweet. And then, not so sweet. It started to not make money. It started to lose money, actually. And you know, sort of like Amazon.com, every machine we sold, we lost money. The more machines we sold, the more money we lost. Now, this couldn't go on, I, you know, we don't have obviously billions in uh, you know, shareholder funds. It was a private company. So anyways, my parents passed on, and they could not change uh, and, and do what was necessary, which was to put the company to sleep, basically put it through bankruptcy. And that's what I had to do. And uh, once I did that, we stopped losing money, and there was still some money left, fortunately. So I started to look around. What do I do with my money? How do I earn my living in the future? I mean, I was already in my 50s, and I didn't want to start a new career, really. So I started to study economics, because I understood that in order to invest properly, I would have to understand more about economics. Didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense. I was looking here and there. And then I stumbled across Austrian economics. And it started to make sense, human action, what causes uh, economic events to take place, and so on. So I really got into this, and I, I actually bought 
uh, Mises' great big tome, Human Action, and Rothbard's book, and I became a, a bit of a disciple. And then one day I, I read an article on the internet, some guy called Fekete, obviously Hungarian, criticizing Mises. Oh, what is this? A crazy Hungarian. Well, I could say that because I'm Hungarian. <laughs> so, I, so I looked at and I, I read the stuff, and, he, and then it goes beyond that. He says, Mises actually made a mistake. It's, oh my God, that's like saying Jesus made a mistake. <laughs> and in fact, he says, uh, Mises said that on page 434 of his book, that um, fully mature claim against gold is just as good as gold. And I knew it wasn't true because I, I know about the gold watch and so on. So I take the book off my shelf, page 434 or whatever. Sure enough, there it is, exactly as he quoted it. Well, I better take this seriously. He's not a crazy Hungarian, he's a smart Hungarian. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so I started to read all his work, his, his uh, credit theory 101 and the second greatest story ever told. And I was just open to listen to this. And it was great because it was a, it, it, he called it university, uh, gold standard university. Oh, university, I learned stuff. It's not just an article, but it's something that is more in depth. So I read all this stuff. And it started off talking about the second greatest story ever told, which was Adam Smith's Real Bill Doctrine. Well, I knew Adam Smith, obviously, but Real Bill Doctrine didn't have a clue. But I said, okay, if he wrote it, I'm reading it. I don't care. So I read it and studied it, Real Bills, what they are and how they work, and it made sense. It all made sense. And later on, much later on, I realized he did start with the right thing. He didn't get into gold as money and so on and so forth. He went right to the heart of the issue, which is that a gold standard, quote, gold standard, cannot on its own survive without the clearing system of the real bills. Now, most people don't know about this. I'm sure you know that around World War I, England went off gold. Yeah. Banks did that frequently in order to finance the war. And after the war, they tried to get back on gold. And that, that's a historical fact. And uh, apparently, they tried to uh, put the, the pound, the British pound, back on the same uh, level. In other words, they didn't devalue the pound. And therefore, it was very uh, difficult to try to do this. And this, again, is in the history book. And then it stops there. But what you don't hear about is that the clearing system of the gold standard was not reestablished, And that's the real reason the gold standard could not work. And I started to understand this. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the real bills right now because it's the most important part and that most obscure part. Most important because it cannot, gold standard cannot work without this. And I'll tell you why in a few words. And second, because it is obscure and it was easy to get rid of. Now it was not easy, not that easy to get rid of gold. A lot of people understood gold as money and they, they were clamoring, get back on gold, this is the right thing to do. Oh yes, but not too many people knew about these real bills. Every consumer knows about a gold coin like we all know about a dollar bill. And uh, most of us know a little bit about borrowing at the bank, you know, a mortgage and uh, so on, borrowing money for a car. Just like I mentioned yesterday, the gold bond. But not too many people know about bills, invoices, a modern term for them. And um, these are in the background. They're, at the, they're between the retailer, the wholesaler, and the manufacturers, and so on. And only accountants deal with them, 
and most of them don't really understand what it means. So it has to be understood. Now some people are out there promoting a 100% gold standard where only gold is money and nothing else has any monetary value. This won't work. The reason is simple. Gold is fixed. There's 80 years worth of gold supply there. It grows 1.5% from the mines. End of story. It's completely non-flexible. Commerce is not unflexible. Commerce does vary. There's a Christmas rush and a quiet period. There's a driving season and a quiet period. And these things are cyclical and they go up and down. And of course, the enemies of gold use this as an excuse. We need flexible money. Gold is not flexible. It can't work. We need flexible money. Well, no. You don't need flexible money. You need something to accommodate commercial up and down, yes, but that doesn't mean flexible money. And the real bills are flexible and they do this. So I'll give you an example so you understand what I'm talking about. Let's say a retail, let's say a gasoline station. There's a gas station, sells gasoline from the pump. And every once in a while a big truck drives up, I don't know, in Australia, but in Canada it's around 30,000 liter, 18 wheeler, drives up, fills up the tanks, and then goes into the office, the driver, and that's about $30,000 worth of gasoline. Does he get $30,000 in cash from the attendant? I don't think so. Or does the attendant write a check? No. What does he do? He signs a bill, which means he accepts this gasoline and agrees to pay in 30, 60, 90 days, whatever the terms are, the value of the gasoline just delivered. So here, obviously, credit has been created. I mean, he's got $30,000 worth of gas in his tanks, in his underground bin, that has not been paid for. And the money will come in fill by fill, car by car, over the next month or two, whatever the time period is, and then that money will pay off the bill, and the bill is extinguished. Now, this is a precursor to the real bill, because this represents value. This piece of paper says that gas station owes me money based on this signature. And there's a certain amount of trust here, obviously. The wholesaler, the gasoline wholesaler, knows very well he will get paid. He knows very well the gasoline will sell, so he's not too concerned. It's a voluntary agreement. Now, the gas station obviously gets the benefit of a large gas delivery and doesn't have to pay for it. And the other guy, the wholesaler, gets the benefit of making a big delivery. If he wanted to get cash on the barrel, nobody would buy 30,000 liters. They might buy 3,000. So it's beneficial to both. So what does the wholesaler do with this bill? Well, he can stick it in his till and wait till it matures and then collect the money. Or collectively, all his bills are his accounts receivable. Well, and he may have 100 gas stations, so he's got 100 bills sitting there. He could take all these bills, go to Monsieur Bank, say, hey, I've got you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of receivables, a million dollars worth of receivables, lend me against it. And banks will do that. As you know, they do lend against receivables. But then the bank has to collect the interest on it, and the, uh, the receivables become collateral to the bank, and so on and so forth. So he has another choice. He can take this bill and sign it over to the refiner. In other words, pay his bill with this bill by passing it up the line, without having to go into his cash money, without having to borrow anything. And this is the precursor to bill circulation. It's vertical circulation. Professor Antal has already mentioned that in the petroleum industry, this actually happens today. And uh, it bypasses the banks. 
and it's a benefit to all those people. Now, under the true real bills doctrine, there's also horizontal circulation. In other words, that gasoline bill may go to grocery chain, and a grocery chain bill may go to the shoemaker, and so on and so forth. And all this works very well. Contrast that to bank credit, where you have to pay, and of course, who controls the rate of interest, who controls the terms, who decides, yes, we'll give you or no, we won't give you, it's the bank. With the real bills, it's the consumer. If people don't buy much gas, fewer bills are drawn. There's, the delivery truck doesn't show up every week, it shows up every month. One bill every month. If consumer demand goes up, more bills are created. So it's dri driven by consumer demand, very flexible as commerce picks up. And of course, in every consumer industry this happens, you know, if you're talking about groceries or shoes or clothing, same kind of thing goes on. <coughs> It has a built-in feedback system. It's self-controlling. And it's not inflationary. If money was printed to do these transactions, where would the money end up? In some banks' reserves are piling up in the vaults. Whereas the bills are extinguished. Once they're paid off, more paid in full, they go into the archives. And there's another beautiful aspect to it. Nothing Suppose the gas station wants more gas. There's big demand, some kind of boom is going on. And the refinery cannot refine any more fuel. Well, guess what? If fuel can't be delivered, bills can't be drawn. Bills can only be drawn if the fuel is delivered to the retailer. So supply constraints also feed back into this. And you cannot overheat the economy, so-called. Mr. Bernanke doesn't have to tap on the brake pedal. It's all automatic. It's all built in. So I put to you that this is the most important part and if you notice our logo, it says the Gold Standard Institute. It does not say Gold Money Institute. It does not say Gold anything. Gold Standard and Gold Standard has to have these components with it. And the most obscure one is the most important, that one right there. So that's how I got into this thing. I read up on this thing and I said, <clears throat> the professor's work is too important to disappear. I commit my own energy to preserve and disseminate this information. And I've been doing that for a couple of years. And then when Philip came along and set up this institute to continue this work, after I saw what was going on, you remember very well in the hotel room, I said, Philip, I'm committing to this on the basis of what I committed to before. So I will do whatever I can to promote this and get this idea out to people. And of course, we'll talk about gold specifically a little bit more later on. And just for example, a professor has predicted, now he's not Nostradamus, but he sees things happening as inevitable. There's an article that was on Lou Rockwell lately, The End of Money and the Future of Civilization by Richard Cook. You can probably see this for yourselves. And it's a lot of stuff in here and very interesting, and I'll get to the gist of it. He says, Greco, who's the guy who is an expert on uh, alternative or complementary currencies. In other words, when the banks freeze up, what do people do? What do they, they must eat, they must have gas for their cars. The, the large and growing worldwide LETS movements, local extreme exchange trading system, and then he, he gives some examples, Ithaca Ors in Ithaca, New York, Swiss WR Bank, the longest running credit clearing system in the world. Credit clearing, that's exactly what this is. Clearing goods from the wholesaler to the retailer and so on. 
So these things are happening. 70,000 members, international barter exchange that involve over 400,000 businesses, an annual level of 10 billion. Woohoo! It's getting serious. Credit clearing is not new. Greco traces it to the medieval European fairs, as the professor talked about. These exchanges are like bank clearing houses. The world's largest is the automated clearing house, ACH, so on and so forth. Anyway, the process need not be restricted to banks. It's applied directly to transactions between buyers and sellers of goods and services. So this emergent phenomenon is emerging again, naturally from the requirements of the market, without any intervention from banks, without any government stuff. And it's perfectly legal, as long as people don't use it to dodge taxes, which is still in effect. So I thought I'd bring this up, and um, I think based on that, I'm just going to say next. Thank you. <laughs> it's my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce to you a gentleman that I have known for some time now. And uh, we are in extraordinary times, make no doubt about it. And Part of me wishes it weren't so, but it is. And to have, we have with us what I consider to be a beacon of light in a time of darkness. We are at the end of a monetary system that the whole world is on. And I have to really thank um, Professor Fekete for having written what he's written, um, almost a lone voice, Certainly he's not the only one who has promulgated the ideas of the Austrian school. But he's done it in such an extraordinary and humanitarian way. In learning, uh, I believe it uh, a benefit to have a dialogue with people smarter than you. <laughs> and as I told the professor, I, 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 I may not agree with everything he says, but I'm not the man to quibble with him. <laughs> and so I really, it's an honor for me to sit here and present to you Professor Antal Fekete. Thank you very much, Daryl. And uh, thank you very much. Martha, Daryl's charming wife, could you please uh, give a good hand? I introduce Martha and Daryl as my webmasters. Somebody way back asked me, who is your webmaster? I said, do I have a webmaster? Well, of course <laughs> you do because you have a website. <laughs> I'm a completely illiterate as far as computers are concerned, but I thank Daryl and Martha for setting up my website and uh, making it live, and through this I could make a little bit of impact, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to be here for the second time. Last year in November we were here and we had the first seminar which addressed the question of gold basis. This is the second one and I am hoping that there will be a third one. A lot of things happened during the past year and even more 
things will happen during the coming year. And we have already established a tradition here in Canberra that we are the only forum anywhere in the world to address the issue of the gold basis. Well, to this morning is not the time to tell you more about it. There will be opportunity. I'm just telling you that the present monetary crisis is a gold crisis. And the media and academia, financial journals, television, radio, are completely obscuring the issue. They are talking about uh, subprime crisis, real estate crisis, credit crisis, this and that. But all this is overshadowed the gold crisis, which in my judgment the present crisis is. So the question arises, how can you expect a cure for the disease if the diagnosis is not there or the correct diagnosis is missing? Well, the answer is that you cannot very well expect a cure. And this is the unfortunate situation we are facing today. So what I'm suggesting to you is that we have to understand the nature of crisis before we go on and look for the cure. And this is what we are trying to do. It's a little bit discouraging that we have to run an uphill fight because this, you run into opposition from all corners, official and not so official corners, which is very discouraging. Rudy, who was speaking before me, mentioned uh, Austrian economics and mentioned our uh, pioneering word, work to bring back real bills into circulation, but at least into the consciousness of people. Now, I can tell you from first-hand experience that the greatest resistance I've met in this fight was the Ludwig von Mises Institute in the United States. Now, Austrian economy, uh, economics is, is a wonderful thing. And I am a great admirer of Ludwig von Mises himself. And I know he was a very modest man. He did not want a cult. But now they created a cult around him. And if you uh, criticize anything Mises has ever said, then it's sacrilege. It's you are, you have to be destroyed. And it's a fight. They start, fight it with all means at their disposal, mud slinging and the rest of it. And um, this is really discouraging because the gold standard, the type of gold standard they advocate is, is not going to work. 100% gold standard is not feasible. It has never worked and it never will because, as Rudy explained, gold the amount of gold in circulation is a given quantity which changes very, very little. 
just a tiny amount, almost unobservable. Whereas the amount of trade which has to be financed by gold changes hugely. Just think of the Christmas season when a lot more merchandise is being sold and the next month, January, during which it's, it's a low season to the extent that a lot of stores close shop and say, taking inventory, see you in February. So this is the kind of thing which the world trade is facing, the expansion and contraction, which is natural, perfectly natural. It follows the seasons of the year also in other ways because every quarter it's a different type of food, people consume different type of uh, clothes they wear, and uh, a certain season is good for holidays, uh, other seasons are not so good, the school year has an influence, and so on. So to suggest that a 100% gold standard will solve the problem is, is uh, uh, without any foundation. No thought has gone into this type of theorizing. You have to be realistic and in order to be realistic you have to call a spade a spade and in this instance it means that the real bill is the clearing system of the gold standard. If you cut it off and junk it then you have a crippled gold standard which is not going to fly. If you clip the wings of the bird, the bird will not be able to fly. In the same way, if you clip real bills, uh, then you cannot expect the gold standard to fly. So you are inviting failure if you start out with a 100% gold standard. The sad part is that we have to fight these fights in the open rather than settling our differences and, and I, I am frank about this. I, I know that perhaps in some, on some issues the Mises Institute is right and I have to modify, it's a give and take, but vice versa as well. But they do not choose an open discussion. I have challenged them time and again for an open uh, debate on the real bills doctrine. An open debate which could have an independent jury to decide uh, what the outcome was, or just to summarize the positive sides of the debate, and they have always declined. They just call me names, call me inflationist and, and uh, whatever other bad names you can think of, and uh, they do not uh, uh, debate ideas. They just try to smear your character and that is the type of argument they use. So that's very unfortunate and uh, there's no real need for that because we are working, I, I'm not questioning their good intentions, but when you develop a cult, then you just have to follow the rules of that cult and the rules of the cult call for destroying the character of anybody who argues 
uh, tries to argue on the basis of logic and uh, scientific experience. Now, so much, uh, so so much about the unfortunate situation we, on the hard money side, uh, are facing, and this is, of course, making our real fight with the opponents, the advocates of um, irredeemable currency, uh, more ineffective. That's what we should concentrate on. So going back to the present crisis, I must suggest it to you that it did not start yesterday or the day before a year ago or a couple of years ago. It started after World War II when the victors, the allied powers, uh, set up the uh, famous Bretton Woods monetary system which was based on a mistaken idea. The mistaken idea, well, the, the real, the good idea, because there was a gist of good idea there too, that gold has to be retained in, in the monetary system. After World War II, we have to build a new monetary system which retains gold as the basis. That was the good idea. The bad part of it was that if you have a gold bar, think of the 400 ounce good delivery bar of London. Now this is a very small replica of it, but if you want to know how big it is, it's about the size of a, a, a small brick, and it weighs 400 ounces or 12 and a half kilograms. And this gold bar, is finance, these gold bars in existence finance world trade. Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods recognized that and they retained that as the basis. The trouble was that they allowed a multiple layer of credit to be built on one single gold bar because the United States government built the first layer of credit on it by putting the gold bar in the vault and issuing a corresponding number of dollars at the rate of $35 per ounce on that gold bar. And then foreign central banks took the dollars, the paper dollars, and put it into their vault. So it wasn't gold, it was just uh, dollars representing gold and built a second layer of credit on it. And if they were strong central banks, such as uh, later on Germany and, and Japan, became very strong, strangely, because these were really the uh, losers in World War II, but they became very strong because they had export-driven uh, uh, trade policy. Then they paid out marks or the yen and other central banks, which weaker central banks, which, is, which received those, put the marks and the yens into their portfolio and issued their own weaker currency. So there was a multi-layer uh, credit built on the one single gold bar. And this is invitation to trouble. 
because as long as the world economy is expanding, these credits appeared strong and well justified. But any weakening had a reverse effect. So there was uh, uh, a leverage, a multiple, on a, let's put it this way, fractional basis. Gold was a fractional basis for the credit financing world trade, which as long as world trade was expanding was caused no problem, but as soon as world credit shrank, then the deleveraging process worked in the reverse. So the, 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 there was a a deflation. So inflation followed by deflation and that started a, a, a cycle which the trouble with it was that it got worse and worse and worse as time went on. So really uh, if you want to put a date on this I would suggest that 1944 was the Bretton Woods. It w was not immediately obvious that it was uh, it was uh, built on quicksand because the world trade was still expanding for another 10-15 um, years and the credit was well received by uh, uh, the, the world markets. However, after about 1956 the, there were more and more signs. I, I think 1959 was the first instance that the London gold price, the gold fix, the famous London gold fix uh, shot up from 35 to something like $39, only $4 increase. But this was an incredible event at the time. You know, something in the order of 10% change in the gold price. Now this uh, was considered an aberration. It was uh, not discussed, not analyzed, and the world went on. But after that was from crisis to crisis. And um, especially towards the end of the 1960s, it became obvious that the monetary system of the world is going to crash unless something is done. Now something was not done and the crash actually occurred in 1968 when the, uh, uh, the gold payments by the US Treasury which was, ob was obliged by the terms of the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, to redeem every dollar uh, presented to it by a central bank with a demand for gold at the rate of uh, one ounce of gold for $35. The plus or minus, I think there was a, um, a small margin which represented uh, the gold points. That's just the cost of gold to ship uh, with insurance from London to New York or New York to London. But that was something like a quarter per 35 per ounce of gold because the 
the uh, shipping. The gold is such a concentrated value that it has the lowest uh, cost of shipping when it well, that's one of the basic properties what made gold money. It's, <coughs> it's such a concentrated value that it costs less uh, money to ship the unit of value in the form of gold than in silver. So if the silver-gold ratio is 50 today, it means that if the, you want to ship the unit of value in the form of silver, the cost of shipping is 50 times the cost of shipping gold. So this is uh, just to explain why that small uh, margin or spread emerged. This was natural. This was also on the gold standard of the 19th century because there were gold points and these represented the cost of shipping from one gold center to the other. Now, 1968 was a landmark year, but it took another three years before the U.S. declared bankruptcy or default. It defaulted on its foreign gold obligations. Now, they invented flowery words for that, the closing the gold window, window. <laughs> or, or standing still. There were a number of these phrases, but that will not wipe out the meaning, the legal meaning of the word default. The U.S. in effect defaulted on its gold obligations to foreign governments. The interesting thing about that episode was that the uh, United States could twist the arms of its creditors and they couldn't say even, ouch. But, but you know, the, the Deutsche Bundesbank, the Bank of France, Bank of England suffered huge losses on their books. They had to print special government bonds to uh, plug the holes in the balance sheet of the central bank. Because one day, from one day to the next, the, because of the U.S. default, there was a, a hole in the balance sheet. And everybody who could read balance sheet immediately would realize that the central bank of the country, which is issuing, issuing its currency, is, is mortally wounded. So that was plugged over and the world went on its happy ways for another decade or more and so on and so forth. Now, the, 19, the year 1971 was a landmark year in another way. Because it was the year when gold futures markets emerged. And the first gold futures market which emerged was in Canada. In particular, it was in uh, Winnipeg, which had a uh, commodity futures market. Winnipeg was the trading center for the wheat trade. Canada was a a very important wheat producing country and uh, the wheat was traded in the Winnipeg uh, 
commodity, on the Winnipeg Commodity Exchange. So what happened was that the U.S. Treasury was consulted would they object if Canada started a gold futures market? You see, in Canada there were no gold confiscation like Roosevelt confiscated the gold. And there's no ban on gold ownership or gold trading. Gold was freely available in Canada. So the U.S. Treasury thought it over and so there were some objections. I remember in particular Arthur Burns objected. He was at that time the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. But other Treasury officials, and the majority of them apparently, said that it might be just as good, enough, just as well, to have a test run how this could happen. What would happen if? There was a country with a gold futures market and see uh, whether it would help or retard the cause of the dollar, the paper dollar. So this, with this uh, <laughs> permission from Washington, the Canadians went ahead and started the world's first gold future market. Now, I remember it very well. I was a young man then, a professor uh, not of economics, uh, professor of mathematics. I couldn't make a living as a professor of economics, uh, given given my orientation. <laughs> a Protestant in time of Catholics. <laughs> but but I, I, you know, I I thought that this is a, a historical moment, and I bought myself a seat on the Winnipeg Commodity Exchange, which gave me gave me access to the floor. That was only a few months after gold trading started in Winnipeg. And uh, th there was a steep price for that, but I thought that if I don't pay the price, I will not get the information I was looking for. So I went to Winnipeg during the summer holidays and uh, watched the gold trading and talked to traders. And I realized that there was only one of them who understood the gold market. The rest of them were just followers. They took their clues from the leader and the leader gave them good advice and they, the leader told them about contango and backwardation and the basis and they without having the intellectual capacity to digest this information they just trusted implicitly the leader and they followed and they were prospering. So, but uh, you see, my purpose was different. I wanted to understand and so on. So, it was the year 1972 that I was exposed to the idea of gold bases. And I have been a student of this ever since. And it took that long until last year in November, we had the first seminar on gold bases right here in Canberra. So I'm very grateful to uh, Australia and the uh, people who made it possible, Philip Barton, Marcus Matthews and uh, others as well, and also the, uh, the participants who were willing to uh, come without, just they had to take it, on faith that they, they will learn something worthwhile. Well, I hope they did, but I must, must admit that there was one announcement I made a year ago which did not stand up to the change of times. And I wrote more about this in my one of my latest articles with the title 
the gold basis is dead. Long live the gold basis. The meaning of that is that during that past year, the governments did find a way to manipulate the gold basis. And last year here in Canberra, I uh, preached the gospel that the, uh, that's beyond the reach of the governments. They can manipulate the gold price, and they do, as we all know, but they cannot manipulate the gold basis, which is a pristine indicator above all the hurly-burly of world trade and gold trade and what have you, beyond the reach. Now, I must humbly admit that I was wrong. And I'm here today to correct this and give you a, a, an improved perspective. In other words, we haven't been idle during the past. We have been working very hard and came up with um, new ideas and so on. And we had to modify the concept of gold basis to uh, make it able to explain what is happening in the world today. And I make a commitment to you that this work is going to continue. During the coming year, we, are, we have a team. Uh, you will hear from Sandy Jetley later in the day. And there are others, some of them are here, some of them are not here, who are working very hard on this from the theoretical as well as the practical point of view, and we are planning already a Canberra 3 on the gold basis a year from now, and then we will make public whatever uh, we have been able to find during the year. There will be, I can promise you, there will be lots of surprises and lots of unexpected turns and twists. As, uh, as you can imagine, and the crisis is by no means over, and the green shoots are uh, <laughs> browning out before they... Anyhow, what happened was that in, uh, in the gold future market of Winnipeg, which started trading in 1971, and in the U.S., the gold was legalized in 1975. So uh, one day before the new year, the last day of December 70, 1974, gold trading started in New York. And uh, that meant the end, among other things, meant the end of the Winnipeg because all the business was sucked away. And my money down, which I paid for the seat on the Winnipeg, <laughs> kiss goodbye. <laughs> However, I didn't mind because I thought that I had the information and I could analyze it and I looked around and saw no competition. Nobody, nobody was interested. In, you see, the, the, the basis is an absolutely fundamental concept for grain trading and it's pretty cyclical. It, it's well, it's far more predictable than uh, in the case of gold. But I was determined to find uh, the rules of uh, what governs gold basis. Now, what I found was this: the gold crisis started, say, the year 19. 
65. It's an arbitrary date, but that's, that date was when the U.S. Uh, withdrew silver coinage from uh, circulation, such as dimes, quarters, and there were half dollars in the U.S. And uh, Switzerland followed suit. The, these are the two important countries which still had silver coins in circulation uh, after World War II for a number of years. And they were withdrawn, and I even remember President Johnson, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was the president, and he said that, I give you my word that the silver, that, yeah, they didn't say that they were withdrawing it. That's not what he said. He said that we come out with the clad coins, and the clad coin is with a nickel uh, face on both sides, and in the middle a copper base. And this can be seen at the uh, reeded edge, so that it's like a sandwich and they called it clad coins in those days. I think uh, they still call that, but that's neither here nor there. Now, Lyndon said, remember, I give you my word that the silver coins will keep circulating side by side with our new, more advanced clad coins. Advancement. <laughs> That guy didn't have any idea about Gresham's law, <laughs> among others. He was a complete ignoramus about, as far as... Uh, <laughs> and he was the one who uh, revived Adolf Hitler's uh, idea of guns and butters at the same time. Now, it didn't work because the Vietnam War couldn't be financed at the same time with the great society. But my job is not to criticize Lyndon Johnson. My job is to point out to you that, that silver disappeared and this was a, a, a shock which people could realize. From one day to the next, in the pocket change which they got uh, when they changed the bill, uh, no silver, very few silver coins because they were picked. I mean, people are not stupid and they realize that this has an intrinsic value and the other has practically no intrinsic value. So as a result, we had a gold, we had a uh, crisis and it reflected a, an ongoing gold crisis because what happened, say, between 1965 uh, for, for the next half century, all the gold Output of the, all the gold mines in the world went into hiding. This is a statistical <coughs> fact, and this was crying out that there is a crisis. There is a crisis. This is not. It cannot continue. The, the gold production went up year after year. There was no problem there. The problem was that none of this, on a net basis, was added to the monetary reserves of the central banks. All of it went into hiding, private hoarding. And nobody can explain what, nobody can account for that huge um, amount of gold which actually duplicated the, all the gold previously produced since time immemorial. 
and and uh, that huge amount of gold just unaccounted for. So that was a gold crisis. Now, and I finish on that note, and we'll talk more about this later on during the uh, coming sessions. There is a measure of that vanishing gold. The, the basic gold crisis is described as vanishing gold. But there is a measure, and that is the gold basis. So that's what I've been working out for all these years, and the gold basis was shrinking over the years, well, not linearly, it was, there was ups and downs, and each could be explained in terms of the uh, actual happenings, but the fact is unmistakable that the tendency is for the gold basis to go down. Now, it can go down only as far as zero, because what happens when gold goes, the gold basis goes below zero? Well, that's permanent backwardation. And that's what we discussed a year ago, and we are going to return to this. And I'm counting on my good friends and pupil, Sandy Gently, to say more about this, how the, uh, what we learned during the past year about the vanishing of the gold basis. So, ladies and gentlemen, to sum up in one word, the crisis we have now is a gold crisis. Make no mistake about it. Whatever you read in the media and um, government propaganda, you have to discount it because it's a gold crisis. They will not admit it. It would be the last thing for them to admit it. But it's a gold crisis and it is reflecting a very basic lack of confidence in the wisdom of the powers that be. Thank you very much. discussing the basis in detail. And um, as the professor said, last year was the first time that it was really brought out officially. And yeah, I listened to what the professor was saying this morning. And I realized how momentous this group gathering here in Australia is. I mean, you guys are a long way from the rest of us. <laughs> but and perhaps that's why it's happening here. Um, that in Australia, 
this is where it was first basic, really discussed in, in terms of a uh, extensive uh, study of the basis. And, uh, and, and what the professor said this morning, I think if you will take it to heart that you're sitting here with a man who as a, a professor of mathematics at a university went out and bought with good money a seat on an exchange to study the truth of an emerging market in precious metals. And that 20, that almost 30 years later, we are here benefiting from this man's expertise. I know for certain that nobody else who had bought a seat on that exchange went there for a reason of education. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's any profit in that seat, it is to ours. We are profiting from your you're buying that seat, and it also occurred to me that it had they actually you know, done it in New York, you never would have been able to afford that seat, and we would not have profited. But <coughs> that's what, um, before we, we're going to go on a break now, we're going to come back at 11.45, but uh, as Rudy pointed out, two years ago over in Hungary, when the professor had this Gold Standard University, and there were a number of us, of us here who were there then. Nathan, Martha, I, Philip, Rudy, others. And we were considered ourselves fortunate to be in this man's presence, to learn what he had to say. And uh, if I can convey to any of you the uh, significance of that, and, and of being here firsthand to hear his observations, his thoughts, um, one of the words that he taught us that time was apodeptic. It's not in. Uh, it's Greek. It's oh, it's Greek. Well, I didn't even know we were learning Greek. It was Greek to me. But uh, apodeptic means it's 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 not for certain. You don't take a stand and say this is that. All right, that it's open to dialogue. And as learned as a professor is, I've always been struck by his humbleness and as by his openness to dialogue. And, um, and, and, and the questions that you will have in the next three days, four days, be sure to bring them up because this man is, his knowledge is available to us and uh, he truly is a professor. So we'll see you in 45 minutes. What, what you <laughs> it's Greek. <laughs> so we'll see you in 45 minutes, 11.45. Thank you.